Good morning, friends. Uh, those who are here, who are here for the first time, uh, and for those joining online, if you don't know who I am, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's, uh, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, today, we'll be continuing our series through the book of Philippians, uh, so before we begin, let's commit ourselves and this time to God in prayer. O oh, merciful Father, help us to humbly receive from you, to receive from your word in this moment, that we may rightly hear from you and from you alone. We ask for your spirit to quiet down our hearts and open our eyes to where we need your truth that we'll read today in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, uh, we've looked at Philippians, uh, the last part of chapter 1 from verses 27 all the way to chapter 2 verse 11. And Reverend Andrew showed us that Paul expected the whole Philippine, every member of the Philippian church to be living a life worthy of the gospel. And of course, by extension, that goes to all of us as well. That this gospel-worthy life was seen in two things. The first being their courage under pressure in the face of persecution. And the second thing was that this gospel-worthy life is seen through their unity, through humility. And uh, it was defined for us last week that, that humility was about considering others more significant than ourselves. And the ex- ultimate example of this humility was, of course, our Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And that's how we walk through uh, verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2, where it showed us that Jesus, he is the divine Son of God, himself God, humbled himself, entering into our humanity, not as a king, but as a servant, as a slave, that Christ became obedient to death on a cross, that he humbled himself, that his humiliation wasn't just that he hung naked on the cross, but we were told that is that he became a curse for us. He bore our curse. And that's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That says, God made him, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And because Christ did so, we see that God exalted him to the highest place, raised him from the dead, and seated him in the throne of heaven. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that we were all cursed, that we were all cursed, separated from God under his wrath, that God made a way out from that curse, through Jesus, through his sinless life, through his perfect sacrifice on the cross, on our behalf, so that when we, all of us who believe in him, we're united with him. And as God raised him to the highest place, raised Jesus to the highest place, we too who are united with him are raised with him, no longer under a curse, but truly blessed. And if today you have not been united with Christ, you don't know Him as your Lord and your Savior, it is our greatest wish that you will consider, that you hopefully believe in Him and find the joys of being united to Him, knowing Him and knowing His love. It is in response to this great love that Christ has demonstrated that we begin today's passage. It's in light of that that Paul continues on and gives direct instructions to the Philippians and also by extension to us as well today, on how to live out this gospel-worthy life. 
And there are three facets of this gospel-worthy life that's important to us, broken out in three parts, as you can follow in the service order, as well as in, yeah, uh, it should come on the screen. That we are to work out, that this gospel-worthy life is to be worked out, that it shines out, and that is to be poured out. Three things, right, as we follow the section. And the main um, idea is that along those three lines, that the gospel-worthy life is worked out, shines out, and is poured out. So let's begin with the first, in, in verse 12. Paul begins, Therefore, my beloved, and the hint there when he says therefore is that everything that we're going to look at hinges on what came before. Everything, how we're going to understand whatever we're going to look at depends on what came before. So if you happen to miss it or you maybe need some refresher, may I advise you after this, uh, go and catch it on the live stream, um, last week's live stream, right, on YouTube. So therefore, my beloved, Paul says, as you've always obeyed, now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. What's going on here? So in response to Christ's great example of humility, right, their unity together, that they're having the same mind in Christ. And Paul alludes here that uh, this was what they demonstrated when he was with them, when he was starting the church of the, Philipp uh, the Philippian church. This is what he witnessed when he was with them. But now that Paul is not there, remember Paul's in prison, he says, in my absence, work out your salvation. Continue in this. It's the same thing. That obey and to work out is the same thing. To work out your salvation. Now we need to, to define the word salvation here because I think there's some gap between how we understand and how we use the word today versus how Paul is using it in this passage. What I mean? Commonly when we say salvation, we say salvation means to be saved. And logically, to be saved means to believe in Jesus. So the moment you trust in Christ, you are saved. And that was the invitation I gave just now to salvation, the invitation to salvation. But the, here's the thing. It doesn't make sense for Paul to say to work out your salvation if that's what it means because Paul already in chapter 1 already expressed his firm confidence that the Philippians are saved. That, that they will be, their, their, their work will be completed on the day of Christ. He firmly believes that they will be saved. So Paul is not talking about the first instance of salvation. Rather, Paul is talking about the entirety, the total salvation from the beginning, the first moment, till the day of Christ. The entire breadth of salvation life. Because friends, salvation is not just that we've been saved from death. Yes, it's true. We, we are grateful that we've been saved from death, from the curse. But we are also saved not just in that moment, but we're saved to live for God. That salvation is about being united with Christ, about growing in your faith with Him. That every moment of our lives is to be living a life worthy of the gospel, isn't it? That this gospel-worthy life doesn't happen passively, it doesn't happen instantly, or even naturally. We don't go to sleep at the night and wake up the next morning, I am more like Christ this morning. I don't need coffee, no. We, it happens gradually, it happens intentionally, and it happens moment by moment, choice by choice. Our growth in Christ, friends, don't miss this, requires intent labor. And the labor is to choose Christ. Now, one instance of choosing Christ is, of course, uh, what we're doing here today. Whether you're here, um, sitting here, you didn't come here and peer on the seats you didn't sleepwalk into church, let's put it that way. You woke up, you set an alarm, you woke up, you had breakfast, you came and you sat down, you chose to make this the time with God's people a priority. Even those viewing online, 
I hope that it's not just something random that just came as you were swiping through, right? You, you, you plucked yourself in front of the screen and, and, and chose to turn on this live stream to be watching this at this time. To make this a priority, you chose. And it also goes beyond that, to be choosing to spend time with God in word, in His word and in prayer, because that's how we, we talk to God, because that's how we, we, we learn about Him. And it all goes to choosing to make God's people a priority in your life, to be making space, to be making time, to be giving off yourself to one another. Because as we'll see, this, this labor is not just about us. It's our salvation worked out in the context of one another. That's why Paul uses the command, work out. Because salvation requires work. In fact, not just to work out, but to work it out with fear and with trembling. So let's, let's reframe that, isn't it? Let's go back again. That the Philippians were to work out their salvation, their salvation in the context of their humility with one another. Again, we're reminded, just peeking forward a bit in Philippians 2, uh, 4 verse 2, that there's serious infighting in the Philippian church. Right? There's two sisters who won't get along. And, and Paul's telling them, earlier in chapter 2, he says, be of one mind. And here he says, work out this salvation, this, this humility of one another with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who works in you. Literally, God is the in-working in you. God's the one who is in-working in you as you work. And God works that you, to, that you may will and work to His good pleasure. So we have two things here, isn't it? We have God's work, and we have what we do, the labor that I've just outlined just now, the, our choices. And neither should be emphasized at the expense of the other. We cannot go, okay, uh, it's my choice, it's on me, it's all on me, right? It, without me, it will, you know, without my choice, it would all crumble and fail. No, we can't do that because God is working as well. But neither can we go, oh, God's got it all handled, so I can just relax. Like I said, you know, we don't wake up this morning naturally wanting Christ. We have to choose, right? Both working together, God willing in us as we choose Him. That God's grace and God's, God's uh, strength strengthens us to choose Him. It works together. Now, bearing this in mind, there's two reasons why we do it with fear and trembling. The first reason is that I'm recognizing, this is, I'm working out my salvation in the context of each other with fear and trembling because I recognize that what God is doing in your life and God is doing in mine is a work of God. To get in the way of that would be to going in against God's good pleasure, to be displeasing to God. So that's the first. God's work in others and God's work in ourselves. But the second reason is, is, is wonderful because we're reminded of Philippians 1 verse 6, this promise, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the day of Christ. That our salvation is this good work that God has begun in us. That salvation is a good work that God has made in us. He works in us. That our salvation, our labor for Christ will never fail to result in His good pleasure. The labor for the gospel-worthy life, as Paul was commanding them to work it out, was a guaranteed certainty. And that brings us to our first principle. And that is our progressive labor has a guaranteed result. Now, as I was thinking through the implications, like what does this mean that our labor has a guaranteed result? There's implications for this. And I draw from the work of C.S. Lewis uh, called The Weight of Glory. It's uh, freely available online. 
And allow me to paraphrase. There is no such thing as an ordinary person. Take a look around you, at the people around you. Think through the people that you've met, that you've interacted with today, and realize that there are no ordinary people. We have never in all our lives interacted with a mere mortal. Because God's design for all human beings, you and I included, is that we will be living for an eternity. That we will exist eternally. Therefore, it brings that there, there are two possibilities. Okay? Even the, the, the most uninteresting person that you meet, right? the, the dullest and most uninteresting person. Now, don't look at them right now, no names mentioned, right? But imagine that person. If that person's in Christ, that that person will one day be a being of such immense beauty and glory so that if you, if you were to see them today, you'll be tempted to worship and bow down because they'll be glorious. But on the flip side, if they are not in Christ, if they are in their sin, that person will one day be so corrupted and so twisted by sin that there will be such horrors beyond the worst nightmare. Friends, there are no ordinary people, no mere mortals. They are either everlasting splendors or immortal horrors. And what does it mean for us today? All day long, in our interactions with one another, we are helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. In our words, in our deeds, with one another, we are moving each other more towards one or the other. So in light of this, that's how we operate. That's how we think about our gospel-worthy life. That's how we labor in light of these possibilities. And that's what Paul continues on in his instruction in verse 14. Paul says, that is why you do all things. All things, including all that we've mentioned just now. The working out of our salvation, the living out of the gospel-worthy life, of being united in suffering, united in humility, doing all of this without grumbling, without disputing. Why? Because when we grumble, we grumble and we dispute when we are about our rights, our entitlement, what I am owed, then we begin to grumble when we feel that I'm not getting what I'm owed, the respect that I'm owed, the apology that I'm owed, right? The, the, the entitlement rather than, than, than what, would, what, what God tells us to do. The humility, the model of humility he has given us, which is not about entitlement, but rather considering the other more significant. It's about humility. And if we do that, verse 15, that's why Paul says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Wow. Does, does, but does Paul mean here that we are to be morally perfect? No, absolutely not. Let me point you to an earlier prayer that he made in Philippians 1 verses 9 to 11. Paul prayed, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. That being pure and blameless is about being filled with the fruit of righteousness of Christ. It's not about your or my moral perfection, friends. It's about being so filled with Christ. It's His blamelessness. It's His innocence. It is His light that you shine. 
So in that context, being blameless and being innocent and being without blemish is two things. There's two means, implications. The first, it's about being true to our identity in Christ. Friends, if you've believed in Christ, you've been united with Him. You've been given uh, all that He is. You've been raised with Him. Therefore, all that Christ has, you have too. That the Bible will call us who believe in Him. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're sons of God, just as Christ was. To be true to our identity, who we really are in Christ. Children of the Most High. We don't deserve this, but we only get it because it's in Christ. That's the first implication. The second implication is that as we shine forth Christ, don't forget we're shining forth in contrast to a crooked and twisted generation, a world that does not have Christ. And that's why he says that you'll be children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. As we read in our Bible reading earlier in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, that the crooked and twisted generation was actually God's people, Israel, that rejected God that faithless generation that refused to have faith. But crooked and twisted describes the, the world of Paul's day, and I will contend, describes our world out there today as well. That the world around us is twisted away from God's truth. That if God's truth was a firm pillar, unmovable, unshakable, the world is crooked. Where God calls us to be humble, to, be, to consider each other more significant, the world says to look out for number one. So how does this bear out in marriages? If I'm not happy in my marriage, I'm not happy. I look for an exit. I go for a divorce. If my work is taxing, it's too hard for me, I'm not happy, I quit. Or for employers, if, if I want more profit, what happens then, right? I will squeeze the downline. I'll squeeze my employees and my customers till I get more money. A world where everyone is looking out for their own self-interest is a ruthless, dog-eat-dog world where everyone will be out to get you. And it's a world that trust will not come easily because everyone will just use you up and spit you out for their own gain. It's a tiring existence. It's a weary existence. Now, friends, imagine a weary soul chewed up by the world, used up and just weary, walks through our doors, what will they find? What happens if they sit among our pews and they're just greeted with cold shoulders, judgmental looks, or maybe, you know, just greeted by people who are just self-absorbed with their own experience as they sit in the pews and ignored as everyone just rushes off to do their own thing? Will they be helped? No, isn't it? So let's play that back. Let's rewind that. That same world-weary soul walks through our doors, but this time, they find a community that sees the other more significant than themselves, that, that has warmth and love, the love of Christ, to seek, to, to, to desire to connect with one another, to, to, to care, to pray for one another, to stand firm in one mind in Christ. What's the result then? And that's why Paul continues, among whom you shine as lights. The love and care that we show this, this community, uh, we be this kind of community, will be a shining light 
among the godless darkness of this world, that that weary soul will be refreshed. Not because of the awesomeness of that community, although sometimes, you know, the fellowship can be really good, but because this is a community that actively brings them to the one who can give true life. That we shine as lights in the world by holding fast to the word of life. Verse 16. Now, what's the word of life? There's a few things represented here that, you know, that we're singing about, isn't it? First of all, the Bible tells us Jesus is the word. He is the word. He is the life, isn't it? But the word of life has also been used to describe the gospel, the good news of Christ. And we learn about Christ. We learn about his gospel through his word the Bible, scriptures, that the word of God gives life as well, isn't it? Through these three things that are not separate, it comes together as one, and this one concept of the word of life. But friends, let us be careful because the Bible warns that knowledge puffs up with pride, but love builds up. Truly holding fast to the word of life means that we are transformed by his word. We are transformed by his word to be more like Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the light of the world. We are shining His light. Even as we read in the Gospel, we are the light of the world. We're not shining our light. We're not shining the light of St. Mary's. We are shining the light of Jesus. Our labour, therefore then, friends, is to work to shine His light. And it's impossible to be like Jesus if you don't know Him. And that's why we turn to the Word. That's why we look in the pages of Scripture to know Him, to love Him, to hold fast to this truth. And this brings us to our second principle. Our labour in love, friends, shines forth in this dark generation against the backdrop of a self-serving world that's crooked and twisted. God first demonstrated what true love looks like by Himself loving a fallen humanity. God the Father sent His Son. In love, the Son went to the cross. In love, the Spirit reaches out to our hearts, works in us to make us aware of His love for us. Friends, the love that God has demonstrated is not a love that remains passive. It's not a love that just sits on its own hands and does nothing. If we bear this love, this self-sacrificial love, it will shine in contrast to the world. And without knowing it, actually, The world hungers, the world yearns for such demonstrations of self-sacrificial love, isn't it? Think of the great themes of love, of of stories in movies or in books. Noble, self-sacrificial love. Or even in a more everyday occurrence, the love of the parent for the child as the parent's self-sacrifice. We celebrate such self-sacrificial love, isn't it? Why? Because God built us to recognize his pattern of love when we see it. And it's a pattern we see in his word. Without realizing the world actually uh, uh, desires this. But friends, don't worry. On that day, it will all be made clear. God's love, his self-sacrificial love, and all of us in our own labor, it will all be seen clearly on that day. That's why Paul continues on in our last part. He brings forward, not just in this current struggle of working out their salvation now, but that on that day, in the day of Christ, he continues on in verse 16, in our third section, about being poured out. That Paul says he will be on that day proud that he did not run in vain, did not labor in vain. That as the Philippians shine like lights, as they hold fast to the truth, to, to God's word, Paul says 
that, he, that he'll be glad that he did not run in vain. And in verse 17, he continues, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, what's a drink offering? Right? The drink offering is actually a, a cup of wine, usually, that's poured out on a larger offering, usually a grain offering or could be a, an animal offering or a food offering, and it's offered together with the main offering. The key part here is that the drink offering is not the main thing. It's a complement as a drink is to a meal, right? It's paired with it. And together, it, it's described as a fragrant offering rising up to the Lord. So, with that understanding of drink offering, what has just happened? Bear in mind, Paul, the great apostle, Paul who planted this church, right? He, he, he says that on the day of Christ, it's not about Paul. On that day, it's not about Paul. It's not even about Paul's legacy. He doesn't go, I planted you. You better continue because it's my legacy you're bearing. No, he doesn't do that. He gives thanks that he is but a cup on the offering of their faith. Paul is not self-entitled. Paul is demonstrating what it means to consider the other more significant than himself. And this is not just with the Philippians. Indeed, if we were to look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 6, again, he uses the same idea that I'm poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul viewed the entirety of his life, the summation of his existence, of his ministry, as a drink offering. Friends, we no longer give offerings to God in a temple with an altar of fire, right? Number one, because Christ himself is already the perfect sacrifice. So we don't have to. But what about us? We do still give offerings. We still do give sacrifices of ourselves. So Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Friends, our words, our lives, our thoughts are what we offer to our Lord. So may I ask, what are we offering to our God? Are we giving Him the best of our time, the best of ourselves, the best of our energy, the best of our attention? Are we giving Him the best time of our day? Or are we just giving Him the leftover, the spare change we find in our pocket that we put in the jar for some good cause? Are we just giving Him the leftovers of our day? And in fact, not just about what are we giving to God, but how are we viewing our offering to God? Is it about us? Is it about our legacy? Is it about our glory? That all of the works that we do for Christ is so that I can build a bigger mansion in heaven. Yes, Christ has promised us many rooms, yes. But how do we view our offering? Is it about us? Or is it about Christ? And what Christ is doing in the other person instead of us? You see, if we labor not for our own self-importance, but for the other in humility, considering the other most significant, laboring for their sake, laboring for their sanctification, what happens? We become freed up. We become liberated to celebrate God's work in the other person. And that's why Paul concludes here that I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should rejoice with me. 
So let's recap. To summarize, the gospel-worthy life is worked out, but the labor is guaranteed, right? Now, even as we seek to work this out, we work out this Christ-like humility, this labor will shine like a light in contrast to the world. That this light will shine this way because it is not about us. It is about being poured out for the other. So we come to our last principle, and that is our labor is for each other in the day of Christ. Let me end with this analogy. So my children, um, they're at an age where they're beginning to learn how to read, right? Ages five and seven. And, and how do you begin to read English? You begin, uh, now in schools, they teach something called phonics, right? How each alphabet sounds, how each vowel sounds, and they pair it together and they learn how to read. Now, let me be clear. Phonics isn't fun. I applaud the teachers who try really hard to mix the subject matter uh, game with games and with videos, right? But it's not fun. Ah, ooh, ee, ooh, ooh, right? C can make two sounds. It's so confusing for a kid. But I tell my kid, like, they, they complain, Dad, why am I doing this? It's so boring. And I tell them, persist. Why? Because this current season of learning phonics will prepare them for a lifetime skill. And that's to be able to read. Now, for those of you who love to read, you know reading unlocks worlds, un unlocks untold enjoyment. It deepens one's soul. It's, it's, enjoy. It's, it's a lifetime of joy. It's more than worth it, isn't it? Even if you don't like reading, let's agree that reading is important to exist in life, right? So friends, in that perspective, I, mean, I tell my kids don't give up, right? The same perspective then is this. Friends, if you are here amongst us and you don't have Christ, you're weary from the world. I hope that you taste and see that Christ is good, that Christ loves you, that he loves you like no one else in this world. Christ alone and his love, he's unchanging, he's unwavering, that his will for you is perfectly good, and because he is God, he will accomplish it. Cease from your labor that will not fulfill you, will not save you, and choose to come to Christ today. That's his will for you. And for the Christian, don't give up the labor that you've been called to. Don't give up. Persist. The labor in, in, in standing firm in one mind. The labor of considering the other more significant. Because that's what Christ did, isn't it? That's what we saw last week. That we don't give up this labor because we know that this lifetime of labor is a season of preparation for an eternity of glory. That no matter what time we have left on this earth, if we spend it in labor for Christ, it will be more than worth it in that lifetime of glory when we're with Him. My prayer, friends, is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that we may approve of what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious promises. We thank you in our weakness, Lord. Your grace is enough. Help us, O oh Lord, where we are weak. Help us where we are forgetful to, to live for you, to be reminded once again, to turn away from this world, to instead follow Christ. And we can only do this with your strength and your grace. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.